Hi, church. How we doing? Good? All right. Take your Bibles. Turn to John chapter 5 as we continue our series through the Gospel of John. I want to say hello to the other campuses uh, distributed across the 828. Man, we're thrilled about what God's doing. And I would say this. If you're watching online, by the way, thank you. We'd love to play a part in your discipleship journey, but let me just echo what was also just said. If you are a parent, a grandparent, a guardian, uh, please make sure you get a little Skippy signed up for Adventure Week, all right? This is always a week where God does an imprint on a child's heart, unlike almost any other time of the year. So you can go online, you can see all that information right there. Here's where we are. I know some of you kind of freaking out already about uh, me having this little dropper up here. We're gonna get to that in, in uh, just a second. In the Gospel of John, uh, we uh, started it four, five, six weeks ago. John ends his book by telling us what the whole book is about. And in the very end of the book or a chapter before the end of the book, he says, I've written these things so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name, both abundant life and eternal life. And so what we've been seeing is through signs through sermons, and then eventually as being the substitutionary sacrifice on the cross for our sins. Those are all placarding before the world. This is the Son of God. This is the Son of God. And what's amazing is, is as he does ministry in those three years, he talks to large groups of people and he talks to individuals. He talks to people who are healthy and he talks to people who are sick. He talks to people who are privileged like Nicodemus in John chapter three, and he talks to people who are put down like the woman at the well in John chapter four. And Jesus has an amazing ability to be able to kind of zoom in on the person he is talking to. Yesterday, if, if you saw some of the social media stuff, we had a wedding in our family yesterday and uh, the photographer, it used to be the, you had to rely on the photographers, all right? Because the photographers had the big expensive cameras and he was there yesterday. But also now with, with these phones, I mean, you can put it on portrait mode and you can basically block out all the stuff on the side, all the ancillary stuff on the side, and you can focus in on who you want to focus in in that picture. And what you see is time and time again, Jesus does that. If he walks into a crowd, he was able to look at that one person and deal with that one person. And what we're going to see today is Jesus looks at a man and he asks him a question. And the question seems odd, as we'll see in a minute. The question that he asked him is, do you want to be healed? Do you want to be healed? And church, I would say in front of you as well, is not only is Jesus asking that question to a man 2,000 years ago, he is asking that question to us as well. He's looking at you. He's looking at you in Hendersonville and Brevard and asking the question, do you want to be healed? So before we jump in the text, let me sort of give you a precursor of how we're going to respond at the end of the message today, because we've actually never done this before. We've done it individually. We've gone to homes, uh, and based on your background, based on your upbringing, some of you are like, whoa, I've been waiting for this for years. Some of you are getting really nervous. If you have a, maybe if you have a background that was like super, super uh, enthusiastic and maybe a little Pentecostal, you're like fired up today. You're like, man, I have been waiting for you guys to be excited that the tomb is empty. I mean, that's you today. If you are, uh, if you have more of a Baptist background, then you are a little nervous because when you talk about anointing, the only thing we're used to anointing is biscuits and gravy. That's all we're used to anointing. And you're like, man, I'm not sure about how this is all going to work. And it's all right. It's all right. It's all right. We're going we're to talk about it and, and we're going to explain it. All right. We're not 
just, we're not faith healers, but we are Bible obeyers, and we're going to talk about that. And if you came up from a liturgical background or a Catholic background, there's also some, maybe some confusion because of the whole last rites deal that is, is part of that tradition, all of that. So with that being said, here's what we're going to do. is at the end of service today, we've got folks that want to pray for you, and they're going to anoint you with oil and pray for you. And we're going to ask God to heal some folks. And we're going to ask God to heal some folks in a holistic way. All right, mind, body, soul, spirit. The Bible says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your soul, and with all your strength. And so what we're gonna see today is, God, would you heal some people emotionally? Would you heal some people physically? Would you heal some people mentally? Would you heal some people maritally? Would you, would you do that? Now, we don't tell God what to do. God is not a vending machine that you and I put a coin in, pull the lever, and he's, he's like miracle on demand. That's not it. We'll talk about that. But does God still do that? I don't see anywhere where he stops. It's been abused, it's been taken advantage of, but we'll see. And so here's what happens. And again, if you're nervous uh, because you've never done this before, all right, join the preacher and being nervous. So here we are. John chapter five, verse one. We're just gonna walk through this text uh, little by little, stop every once in a while, and let's see, uh, see what the Lord has for us. Verse one says this. After this, there was a feast of the Jews. And Jesus went up to Jerusalem. So a couple of phrases in there after this. Just so you know, I'm gonna come back to this. After this is when Jesus healed an official son. And one of the things you need to know about is it's, this is a great example of that guy had a lot of privilege. That guy had a lot of wealth. That guy had a lot of power. And here in a few minutes, you're gonna see him going to a person that has no power, has no prestige, has no position at all. Jesus easily goes from one to the other, the other to the one. He does that over and over again. He says he went up to Jerusalem and, it's, and, and he actually says this is a sign. If you look at the end of the chapter, he says this is a sign. Now, if you hadn't been with us the first four or five weeks, a sign is something John uses throughout his gospel. Sometimes you could say he actually structures the gospel around these signs, signs. It's like a miracle with a message. A sign is something that is not pointing to itself, it's pointing to something down the road. All right, a sign is, is like, you know what, something's coming that you can be really fired up about. I mean, think about, uh, I remember actually even pre-COVID, if you remember, you started seeing those uh, sneak previews of Top Gun, the new Top Gun, and it was like, sneak preview, it's coming. We didn't know that the pandemic was gonna hit, but it's like, that's gonna be a pretty good movie. But then after like waiting for like two and a half years, and you see it, and you're like, Eureka, it is amazing to see that. But the bottom line is when Jesus says, listen, these signs are just a sneak preview of what's ahead. He's like, you all think all these miracles are like amazing? You think me healing a nobleman's son is like, it's like you've never seen anything like that before? What he's basically saying is this is not just about my raw power. This is about my redemptive purpose. This is the fact, you think that's awesome? Guess what's gonna happen? I'm actually gonna be crucified in front of the whole world. They're gonna put me in a grave and three days later, I'm gonna come up out of that grave. And when I come up out of that grave, I'm gonna spend time with you. I'm gonna ascend into heaven. And listen, I'm gonna come back one day and take my sons and daughters back to me with me. And I'm gonna wipe away every single tear from their eye. All these miracles are temporary. That's the eternal miracle. And so, uh, all right, that's verse one. So let's go to verse two. Now there is in Jerusalem by the sheep gate a pool, an Aramaic called Bethesda, which has five roofed colonnades. Now, this is just not the VIP entrance. It's the, you can go there now. I mentioned to you a few weeks ago when everybody's like, yeah, we're gonna do an Israel trip at some point, Lord willing. 
But when we go there, I'm sure we'll go by the sheep gate. Just understand the sheep gate was not the VIP entrance, all right? This is not the places where the very important people came in. This is where the shepherds would bring the sheep to get sacrificed. And brings them in there in verse three. And these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. And I love this. I just jotted in my notes, Jesus comes to broken people. Jesus comes to broken people. The pool of Bethesda, by the way, is a good picture of a gospel-centered church. The pool of Bethesda is a good picture of a gospel-centered church. We're just a bunch of people who have been bruised and been beaten up and been battered and we are in need of the gospel and we are very much aware that we need God to do for us what we cannot do for ourselves. So go to verse four and you'll get surprised. Some of you are like, I don't have a verse four. You'd be correct. And so let me take about two minutes and do a little deep dive here because it's important because the number one thing that I want you to have besides a crystal clear understanding of the gospel is I want you to have a very high view of the word of God. I want you to understand and have confidence. You know what? God wrote a book and he wrote a book to us. So here's what's going on. Some of your translations have a verse four. Some of your translations do not. So for example, I use what is called the ESV translation. It does not even have a verse four. It goes from verse three all the way to verse five. Some of you have, let's say like New American Standard has the verse in there, but it has brackets around it and typically a footnote at the bottom. KJV has the verse in there, I believe, and maybe it has a footnote if you have like a study Bible. You're like, what's going on there? So here's just what you need to understand. When you look at, you look at the Bible, there's like, in the New Testament, there's like 15 verses that are in a sense in question because you have what's called manuscript evidence. Again, I'm not trying to nerd out here on you, but what you see is what we hold in our hand is based off manuscript evidence. You need to understand that the manuscript evidence for the Bible is so much higher than any other ancient work of literature, it is staggering to think about. So I'll just give you one example because some of you are gonna go off to college and some professor's gonna come up and say, well, you know, what, you know, what about this? And what about this? And what about that verse? And, and you're like, well, I don't know. And you're gonna be put on the defensive and you do not need to be. To, to give an example, because the second most published or the second most number of manuscripts from ancient literature that we have is Homer's Iliad. You're never gonna hear a professor stand up in front of a college class and say, you know what? Homer's Iliad, you can't even rely on that. You can't rely on it. And listen to me, that was written 500 years after the events occurred, 500 years after the earliest manuscripts. Not only that, there are 643 of those manuscripts. The Bible, we have, our earliest manuscripts are, are, are 100 years, 100 years. That is like a tiny amount compared to the second most. If there's 643 manuscripts of Homer's Iliad, you know how many there are of the, of, of the Bible? 5,600, 5,600. So what happened apparently is some of the translators looked and they looked at the earliest manuscript evidence. And some decided, you know what? Because it's not in the earliest one, we're not gonna put it in there and we're gonna put a footnote. Others say we are gonna put it in there and we're gonna bracket it to kind of bring it out. None of the 15 verses in the New Testament about that have anything to do with any major doctrine, any of that stuff at all. But the good news is I remember when I was a new Christian and I saw that and it's kind of shook me, but then as I thought about it, it's like, that's awesome. They are so careful with how this whole thing was done 
we can have great confidence that, you know what, God wrote a book and we have it right here. All right, we've talked about that before, so I don't want to spend much more time on that today. So here's where we are. Let's go to verse five. One man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. Now, don't miss this. One man was there. He had been an invalid for 38 years. 38 years. Now, some of you, that, that seems like really old. Some of you, that's not old at all. The average lifespan in that day and time was about 38 years, 38, 40 years. And kind of use your spirit-filled imagination for just a minute in this narrative. So for 38 years, this guy was an invalid. For 38 years, he had, I'm sure, done things like pray and hope and be carried. He was dependent on other people to get to this pool, laying on a mat, Probably early on, he spent all of his money on doctors. Hey, help me get this. And at some point, he went broke. His connect group was like, hey, we're gonna pray for you. We're gonna pray for you. And maybe after five years, think about this. After five years, he's still kind of hopeful. You know what? God can do it. God can do it. I just gotta get to that pool. Gotta get to that pool. Seven years hits. His hope begins to wane. 10 years, some anger and some bitterness is creeping in. And here we are 38, 38 years later, 38 years, 38 years is 13,000 days, just Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, one week, 13,000 weeks, chronic pain, invalid, dependent, dependency eventually went into despair. It's just not going to change. It's not gonna be different. It's always gonna be this way. There's no sense crying out to God anymore. And uh, I think the word invalid there says it all. He's an invalid. I mean, think about that word for a minute. Invalid, invalid, invalid. Invalid means without worth, without significance, without validity. That's the way the culture saw him. Without validity, without significance, without purpose. And that's not how Jesus sees him. And that's not how Jesus sees you. Regardless of your mental condition, regardless of your emotional condition, regardless of your physical condition, that is not how Jesus sees you. He does not see you as invalid. The Bible says you've been made in the image of God and you've been bought with a price, 1 Corinthians 6 says. And that culture would look down, just like our culture does today. They're like, you know, that person's in valor. That person is incapacitated. They're not even worth being born. And Jesus says, you know what? Every single one is made in the image of God, right? The most expensive painting pales in comparison to the value of one person. The most expensive animal. I looked up all these animals that had been sold. There's like a cat for $13,000. What a waste. I mean, you saw like, uh, you know, like $1.6 million for a horse. Like, man, what? Doesn't matter which one you pick, guess what? The simplest, most disabled person is worth infinitely more in God's eyes than any of that stuff. And so uh, that culture looked down on them for a variety of reasons like ours does, but one of the reasons was actually theological. You'll see this in John chapter nine in a couple of chapters, it says this. It says there were some men that were asking the question about another person, about another invalid, and it's like, you know what? Who, who sinned, this man or his parents? 
And Jesus said, neither. This sickness is for the glory of God. This is for the glory, the platform of God. Now listen, the way it's tasked today, and we don't usually have that theology that much. We've kind of seen enough stuff to like, it can't always be tied to what somebody did. But the question is asked a different way. Why do bad things happen to good people? That's kind of the way I usually get it. So why do bad things happen? If God's an almighty, awesome God, why does he allow bad things to happen to good people? And again, we've dealt with this. That's not really the message, but let's just deal with it quickly. The first thing you gotta realize is that's not a great biblically precise question to begin with, okay? It's not a real biblically precise. Why do bad things happen to good people? What we have to always keep in mind is there are no good people except one and the worst thing happened to him. So the only good person was Jesus and he got put on a cross for the glory of God and for our good. And so we talk about good people, that's not, but I know what you're saying. I know what you're saying. It's like, why does this happen? And sometimes there's kind of a grid, a metric, or a, a, a matrix you can kind of look at some stuff. So real quickly, let me remind you of what we've gone through before. Why does, it, why does pain and suffering? And again, this is not necessarily gonna put salve on that wound, but it might give you a grid to at least try to process some stuff through. Four different reasons why pain and suffering. Number one is creation is broken. Creation is broken. The Bible says God looked out on what he created and said it is good, it is good, it is good, it is good. But sin shattered everything, everything. The book of Romans says this. It says, just as sin came into the world, Romans 5, 12, just as sin came into the world through one man, talking about Adam, and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. It was originally perfect, now it is fractured. So when you look at tragedies, whether you go from cancer to a car crash, at some point, you and I just have to, we live in a broken world. It doesn't work right, it's fractured. There will be a point where Jesus comes back and makes everything new, but that is not this time. Second reason, reason number two is, and I know some of y'all panic on this, and just, I've been here long enough to just talk frankly with you, but you can just, you can call it spiritual warfare, demonic attack, whatever you wanna call it. And some of you all, anytime I even mention that, I know it panics of, you know, especially for like super educated or super white collar or whatever. It's like, man, you really believe in demons? And I always just say this. I love the way C.S. Lewis put it. C.S. Lewis put it this way. He said, as far as the balance, he said, there are two equal and opposite errors when it comes to spiritual warfare. To disbelieve the existence of spiritual warfare or the excessive interest in spiritual warfare. He said, in his word, demons are all equally pleased with the materialist or the magician. The materialist is like, man, that stuff's a bunch of garbage. Or the magician that basically blames everything in her life on spiritual warfare. And so you just have to understand, is, is spiritual warfare real? You can't read the Bible without seeing that. Is it in every single problem that you have in your life? Probably not. And when you're like, you know what? I, I got five, the devil's attacking me. I got fired from my job. Maybe, maybe that was the devil and maybe you just showed up late about 100 days in a row, all right? Maybe that was it. Maybe you just don't work hard. That was the reason you were fired. And you're like, man, the devil's just after me and my money and I'm using, I'm broken. Maybe, 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 or maybe it's the fact you just spend money you don't have, all right? And you just get deeper and deeper in debt and you just keep spending the money. So that's the second reason. Third reason is... Uh, as we hurt ourselves, it's consequences. It's 
consequences. Kind of goes into number two. It's kind of consequences. Consequences. Like, man, what happened? Let me, let, me, let me say one thing about when it comes to spiritual warfare, the one thing that always comes to mind, there's a ton of different things, marital, emotional, mental, all that stuff. But when it comes to addictions, when you see somebody, whether it be you or somebody you love, and man, they try everything to get off that stuff. I mean, everything, they try it, they get help, they get the counseling, they get all of that stuff, and it just sucks them back in for years. Are you telling me that's 100% physical? You're telling me it's like all that stuff, and the way you try to love them through that, and the pain you went through watching them destroy their own lives, you're like, all that is chemical? You thinking the fact that you and your wife can't stand each other, and all it is is poor communication skills on your part? But I would say the fourth one is this. Sometimes it's just not, it is not your fault. Sometimes part of pain is other people sin against you. Part of the broken world, but sometimes other people sin against you. I, don't, I think I've told this before, but I don't know if I have it. Uh, when my mom got remarried way back in the day, my dad had died and she met a nice man, pretty nice man, um, He was eaten up with something, and I didn't know what it was. I'm just, man, that temper was right below the surface. I'm just talking about right below the surface. I mean, one glass of wine, and that thing was out. So what is that? What's eating him up? And eventually, one time, it came to the forefront, and it just came spilling out, especially in his relationship with God, is the fact that a few years before he met my mom, a drunk truck driver coming down Seymour Highway in Wichita Falls, Texas, drinking, driving a semi. He's driving behind his wife. They're going home back to Turtle Creek Road. He's behind her. She drives through an intersection. The drunk truck driver doesn't even touch his brakes. Kills his wife. Kills his wife. He was impacted for that until he died. He didn't do anything. He's just driving home from work. And so which one is it in this man? We don't really know. We don't really know. We'll get a hint here in a minute. But look at verse six. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, and here's the question, folks, do you want to be healed? <laughs> I'm not gonna question Jesus. All right, so let me just say that. I'm not questioning Jesus's pastoral hospital skills. I'm not, all right? I would just say, that when like a Kelvin Mosley or the way Sam McClam used to do it, when they would train our young pastors to how to make a hospital visit, they did not go into where somebody's being taken chemo and go, do you want to be healed from your cancer? I mean, why? Because you're like on the surface, that kind of seems like a dumb question, doesn't it? I probably didn't say, I felt bad even saying that. That seems like a, that seems to some of you pagans out there, that seems like a dumb question, right? That seems like a question. Who in the world would ask that question? I mean, it's Jesus, but you would think that the guy's like, I've been here 38 years. I've sat by this pool for 38 years. Well, you think, do I want to be healed or not? You think I like sitting on this stinking mat? You think I like being dependent on other people? You think I like people taking me and then putting me by this pool? You think I like watching people run ahead of me? You think I like that? But when you look at it, it is an amazing, it's an amazing question. 
Jesus says, do you want to be healed? The word healed there doesn't just mean a part of him. It doesn't just mean let me fix that little part of you. It's like, do you want to be whole? Do you want to be made whole? Do you want me to take what's broken and make it well? Do you want me to take what's sick and heal it? In other words, do you want me to heal you? Not just this little part of you. Do you want me to heal you? Body, soul, mind, and spirit. Do you want to be changed? Do you want to be changed? Do you want to be healed? And this thought process, this thought came up over and over and over again because you're going to see his, this is a great question because here's what he's asking. He's asking, do you still want this? It's 38 years. Do you still want this? You need to ask that question to yourself. Do you still want that? Whatever that is going through your mind, do you still want that? Because loved ones, what you're going to see is the want to precedes the how to. Got to get this. The want to precedes the how to. If you don't want something anymore, all the how to in the world is not going to help. And Jesus says, do you want to be healed? Do you want to be changed? Do you want to be made whole? This is, not a dumb, this is not a dumb question. It's an amazing question. Because he understands, hey, listen, do you still want this? And I've told you I'm like the worst marriage counselor in the world, all right? I'm, I really am not. A, I used to do a lot more of it. Now it's like either my bad track record or just the church has grown. It's like, I, you know, because here's what, here's what would happen over and over again. Couples would come and they'd say, man, our marriage is in trouble. And I'd like, well, do this. And here's Ephesians 5. And here's 1 Peter chapter 3. And husband, ex, you know, one, two, three, do this. Serve your wife, all right? Love your wife. Sacrifice for your wife. Wife, do this. Respect, you know, I'll do all that. And then I'd see them like six months later. And they're like, yeah, we just got a divorce. I'm like, what happened to what we talked about? It's like, well, you know, we just, it's like they didn't want it to change. All the how-tos in the world don't help if there's not a want-to. I mean, if you came up to me and you're like, pastor, we got this awesome game called pickleball. In this awesome game, guess what? We're going to teach you how to play. We got a racket for you. You can still wear those shoes probably. But uh, we got this racket. We got reserve courts. We got whatever the pickle thing is they use to hit it around. We got your membership at the pickleball club. We got all that stuff. You know what I'd say? It's like, thank you. I just don't want to. I don't want to, so all the how-to doesn't matter because I don't want to. And what Jesus is asking a lot of us today, whether it be a prodigal, whether it be your marriage, whether it be your money, whether it be an addiction, it's like, do you still, do you still want this? Do you still want this? Do you want to change? Do you want that addiction broken? Do you want the marriage healed? Do you want the bitterness gone? Because here's the last thing before we keep on with the story. It's not hard to see that we don't like misery. We certainly don't like misery. But one thing we like less than misery is change. We like the misery that we do know more than the change that we don't know. We like what we have, even if it's miserable. And this is like such a COVID-related deal. We came into some miserable, miserable habits during covid but there's some things that God's asking us to change. That's like, well, I don't know. I know the misery. I know the misery. I'm familiar with it. I've learned to cope with it. And I like that. I'm going to sit in that longer than the unknown change that God is calling me to. It's like a, it's like a diaper. 
It really is. It's like a baby in a diaper. It's a wet diaper. It's a nasty diaper. But you know what? It's warm. It's moist. But you know what? I know it, and I'm just going to sit in it for a while. I'm just, I, you know, I like it better because I know it. And so he's asking, do you want to be changed? And check this out. Check out what the guy does, verse 7. The sick man answered him, sir. Now, remember what Jesus asked him? Simple question. It's a yes or no question. Right? I mean, it's not algebra. Do you want to be changed? Verse seven, the sick man answered him, sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. And while I'm going, another steps down before me. <laughs> I mean, it's either, you're, going to make, you're either gonna make an excuse or you're gonna make a difference, one of the two. You're not gonna do both. I mean, this guy's like, do you wanna be healed? Well, I... You know, I, I, I got a limp and I'm not fast and they cheat and they cut in line and they, aren't they glad Jesus is more patient than us? Seriously. Because if I'm Jesus, if some of you are Jesus at this point and you ask a simple yes or no question, do you want to be healed? And brother sits there and just talks about all the excuses. What are you going to do? There's a bunch of other invalids out there. If you went up to them, it's like, do you want to be healed? They're like, I'd love to be healed. You're like, healed, 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 healed. Then the brother over here that's making excuses like, well, I changed my mind. Too late for you, all right? Too late for you. Making a bunch of lame excuses. That's all you're doing. And so, uh, again, thank, thank God that he's patient with you, right? I mean, when's, did anybody in here respond the very first time they ever heard the gospel? I mean, I sure didn't. I bet you I heard it 50 times. Bethesda actually means the pool of mercy. Bethesda pool of mercy. So God is being amazingly merciful to this guy in the story. And here's, here's what happens. Verse eight, Jesus said to him, get up, take up your bed and walk. Get up. There's three commands. Get up, take up your bed and walk. Now, God heals in different ways. Sometimes it is a process. Sometimes when it's physical, the way he's gonna heal you is by going through physical therapy, all right? Believe me, I know what that's like right now. They've seen me cry way more than you've seen me cry trying to heal this thing up. Sometimes that's the way he actually heals us. Sometimes he does it through people, like a counselor. Sometimes he does it through a pill, like medicine. Sometimes it's not a process. Sometimes it's like, boom, instantaneous. Sometime. Sometime it is. Sometime it's like, you know what? Get up, you are healed, take your bed and walk. Sometime it's common grace like doctors, like counselors. And sometimes it's uncommon grace and boom, God just changes everything. We have people at our church and I was like, man, if I'd have been looking ahead a few months, I would have thought, you know what? This would have been a great story to show because we've got people in our church that in their past was addiction, all right? Whether it be alcohol addiction, whether it be drug addiction, prescription drug addiction, whatever, it was addiction. And then as soon as they actually gave it to Christ and God healed them, most of the time, by the way, most of the time, it takes a lot, a lot of stuff to get out of that. And that's where accountability comes in. All this stuff comes in. Sometimes though, boom, they have like never, ever gone back to that, never thought about it. It is disgusting to them to think, I took that pill. I did that stuff. And so God can do it any way he wants to, but he gives three commands to this guy. Get up, which took some faith. 
take up your bed. No, when you think bed, don't think like Serta mattress here. Think yoga mat. That's more like it, what it was. Like a, but think about this. How nasty was that mat? How nasty? I mean, 38 years, you're an invalid, and you got a yoga mat. How nasty was that mat? I mean, some of y'all, like, you'll go to the gym, and you got those yoga mats, and you take, you wipe it down, and it's your own mat, and it's like brand new, and you make sure it's clean. 38 years laying on this mat. I'll come back to that. But he says, walk. Here's what you got to understand. The mat, because of those three commands, which one's weird? Not weird. Which one's unusual? Which one stands out? Now, get off. That doesn't really do it. It's like Jesus can heal the guy. Walk, that's not that unusual. It's like, all right, we'll come, to, we'll come to that. But take up your mat. Take up your mat? I mean, the mat was his past. The mat was what he knew. The mat was symbolic of despair and defeat. That's all the mat was. But what you gotta understand is the mat was his message. The mat was the message that that's who I used to be, but I'm not that anymore. The mat was the platform. It was the pain of the platform to say, you know what? Take up that mat. Don't be ashamed of that mat. That mat is who you used to be. But you gotta understand that's who you used to be. It's not who you are now if you're in Christ. Now, uh, the enemy's gonna say, we can't spend all our time here, but here's what the enemy's gonna say about your mat. You don't know what your mat is. Your mat, your past might be last night, it might be last week, it might be 20 years ago, whatever it is. But your mat, your mat, the enemy's gonna say, your mat is nasty. And if you don't know how to deal with that, that goes from your mat is nasty to you're nasty. And if you've embraced Christ as your savior, and you gotta understand, if you're in Christ Jesus, what you have to understand is your mat does not get to tell you who you are. Your mat does not get to define you. Jesus gets to define you. And when Jesus says, it is finished, and Father, forgive them, they don't know what they do. That's who gets to define you. That's why we always go back to Romans 8.1. There's no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. Now, if you're not in Christ Jesus, that's what's coming. But if you're in Christ Jesus, no condemnation. Your mat is your message. 2 Corinthians 5 says, if anybody is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away, the new has come. Verse 21 says, for our sake he made him who knew no sin to be sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So what you gotta get down is when your enemy points out your mat, you gotta then turn around and point him to the cross of Jesus, right? When your enemy points out your past and it's like, hey, this is what you did and you're gonna be ashamed of this and what if people knew and da da da, you gotta go, you know what? I'm just gonna point you to what Jesus did on the cross for me. That's the only way, it's the only way you defeat that. If you're like, I'm not gonna listen to the enemy, you're going to hear him. Your question is, are you gonna replace that with a gospel truth? And then he says, walk. He says, walk. I, this hurts all week long thinking about this. Because it seems kind of obvious, right? You just got healed, you're gonna walk. There's a lot of people at church today and you are still sitting on the mat Jesus has healed you from. You honestly think everybody who comes to church wants to be changed? And what he's saying here to this guy is, listen, don't lay back down on the mat that I have delivered you from. What keeps reminding, it's like, with the, it's like the nation of Israel when they got delivered out of the bondage and slavery of the Egyptians. 
Fast forward, flip a few pages on the calendar and you see a scene where they're like, oh man, Egypt was amazing. Egypt was amazing. We had this amazing food. We had these cucumbers and leeks and tomatoes and ribeyes and we had this like amazing, amazing stuff back there. Which by the way, there's no indication they had any of that. They're romanticizing their past. Oh, I remember when we used to party on Friday nights, man. It was amazing to wake up on Saturday with a terrible headache, vomiting. I mean, that was amazing. I look back on those amazing days. I look back on those amazing days when I was so addicted to porn, I couldn't even make love to my wife. I look back on those amazing days when my kids didn't look at me with respect. That's what we do. Look back, man, that mat is amazing. And Jesus is like, listen, you walk in a manner worthy of the calling Is there anything Jesus has healed you from that you're still sitting in? And here's the way the story ends. And at once the man was healed. He took up his bed and he walked. Now that day was the Sabbath. This is almost, we're just gonna run through these because it's it's amazing, we just don't have time to. Verse 10 says, uh, so the Jews said to the man who had been healed, it is the Sabbath and it's not lawful for you to take up your bed. Real quickly, isn't it amazing when people don't understand the difference between religion and the gospel, how, how they can't see the message of the mat, all they do is just get angry over the story. It's like, you can't, you can't do that. The rules get in the way of the relationship. They can't see past the law to the love of God. None of that, they can't see it. Now, real quick explanation. Does God have some rules? Uh, yes, he does. Yes, he does. When he says, don't do something, he's like, be careful. You're gonna hurt yourself. When he says, do this, he's like, help yourself to happiness. So let's kind of put the idea of the cosmic killjoy God out of the question. God is for our joy, for our flourishing. But those commands are for our good. But here's what happened. And let's just take the Sabbath, which is the one in the text today. The Sabbath, is that from God? Yes, yes. One of the top 10, one of the 10 commandments is like, remember the Sabbath and keep it holy. Remember the Sabbath and keep it holy. Jesus said the Sabbath is a gift God gave to man. Why? To refresh refresh you physically, refresh you spiritually. Man, you can get with the people of God and the presence of God to sing praises to God. You can do something that refreshes you. It's a gift that God gave, but here's what happened back then is they took the law of God, they took the precept of God, And then they started adding stuff to it. And when it came to the Sabbath, they had things like, you can't heal on the Sabbath. You can't walk a certain distance on the Sabbath. You can't carry a certain amount of weight on the Sabbath. And so when they see this, I mean, how how jaded do you have to be to see a guy who is an invalid for 38 years, he's healed, and the first thought that crosses your mind is, you're not supposed to do that on the Sabbath. Wrong day, wrong time, wrong miracle. So that's what's going on there. And um, what we wanna do, by the way, is we wanna hold the precepts of God very tightly. If you've ever been to a starting point class, we talk about this five times. We, heard the, we hold the Bible unapologetically and very tightly. What God says, I mean, there's 613 commands. We wanna do them all. They all point to our need for Jesus. We wanna lift up the gospel. But by the way, I mean, I, have a, I can't keep the 613. Anybody in here like batting a thousand on that? No. So why in the world would we think, hey, let's add some more stuff to it Let's add some more stuff to it. 613 is not enough. So here's the way the story ends. Again, we hold the principles tightly. They're unchanging. The methods we hold looser. 
It's been the history of our church as well, by the way. Verse 11, but he answered them, the man who healed me, that man said to me, take up your bed and walk. And they asked him, who is the man who said to you, take up your bed and walk? And now the man who had been healed did not know who it was. By the way, that's somewhat lame, I would think, correct? Isn't that if somebody healed you, wouldn't you go, hey, who are you, by the way? Really grateful, but apparently that didn't happen. For Jesus had withdrawn. It was like ninja Jesus. He just like went into the crowd and was gone. Verse 14, afterwards, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, see, you are well. This is amazing. You are well. You are whole. You are healed. Sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you. Now, real quickly, before we kind of get into the response time, there's one of two things that are happening in that question, because that's a different question or a different statement. You're like, what does that even mean? What does that mean? Well, here's what it, here's what it could mean. One of two things. When he says, sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you, potentially maybe Jesus knew that there were some choices that guy had made that had caused the condition he was in. It's like, all right, you're that way because you acted a certain way and here are the consequences. That's maybe it. But I think the bigger thing, I mean, like what's worse than the condition he was in for 38 years? Just think, what's worse when he's like, sin no more, in other words, repent, repent, so nothing worse. What's worse than laying on a bed for 38 years? Um, Hell would be worse than that. And so I think there's a good chance in here, Jesus is like, I want you to repent and believe in me. I want you to do that. And by the way, there is only one eternal miracle. There's one eternal miracle. There's only one cry You gotta get this, there's only one cry for a miracle that Jesus answers 100% of the time. And when you pray, you know what, God, please heal my sin-sick soul. Would you take what you did on the cross and apply it to me? My soul is sick, it is spiritually crippled, it needs you to come in here and do for me what I cannot do for myself. And I turn from my sin and I embrace Christ. Would you heal my soul 100% of the time when you call on the name of the Lord, he will save every time, all the time. And so here's uh, the man went away, told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. And this is why the Jews were persecuting Jesus because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them and said, my father's working until now and I am working. All right, church, here's where we are. All right, let me say what I said at the beginning. I, nor none of the pastors, nor none of the prayer encouragers, none of the people that here in a few minutes are going to line up, have a lanyard on, and want to pray over you, pray for you. None of those people are faith healers. They're not. I know there's been some abuse. It's like, when people fall over. That's not it, that's not it. We're not faith healers, but we are Bible obeyers. So, listen to two verses before we respond. Half-brother of Jesus in the book of James, James chapter five, verse 13 says this. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. If anybody among you is suffering, the suffering's a broad word. It could mean any number of things. Physical suffering, emotional suffering, mental suffering. He says, let him pray. Is anybody cheerful? Let him sing praise. So our response time is like two things. Pray or praise, one of the two. If you came in here and it's an awesome time for you, amazing time for you, and God is just showering you with blessings, your response is here in a second, you just, you sing. That'd be great. But 
if you're suffering, it says pray. The word suffering there means pain. That's really what it means. It just means pain. It could be, it could be financial pain. It could be physical pain. It could be kid pain. And parents in here, I mean, you know what? And there's no, there's no pain like kid pain. In verse 14 of James says, is any among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. Is there a little mystery to this? Absolutely there is, but let me give you a little bit of clarification. The word sick there means broken. It means broken. You're physically broken. You had a bad report from the doctor. You're fearful about that. What do you do? You pray or you let the elders, you let the leaders, you let them pray over you. Mentally, you're mentally broken. Man, I thought about that. You're mentally broken. You worry about everything. You're fearful. When I think about the stuff that happened the last couple years and the ongoing residual collateral damage, when I think about our teenagers, and our kids, all you gotta do is just take one look, just take one look at the emotional barometers and the emotional health of teenagers right now, what do you have? I mean, you've got skyrocketing anxiety, skyrocketing depression, skyrocketing suicide, which by the way, if that's even entering your mind, please listen to me, don't do that. Listen, man, God's got a purpose for you, God's got a plan for you, God loves you. The fact that you're here is evidence God loves you and he's not done with you. So please don't do it. Let us help you. Some of you, your marriage is broken. It's just broken. It might have been broken before COVID, but it's broke now. You are two people basically trying to get through where the kids go off to college. You can then go your separate ways. That is broken, brother. It doesn't have to be that way. It's broken and you need to ask God to heal it. Some of you have addictions and you know you do. You know you do. And you've gotten used to it. It's that warm, dirty diaper that you're like, I, I don't like it and I hate it, but I don't like the change. And this is the day God says, enough of that. Enough of living in the bondage, enough of living in the, the cuffs, enough of living in that. It's, that. You don't have to do that. And it says you pray this way, you pray for healing, you let the elders and the leaders pray for you. And the lastly, it says you pray, you anoint them with oil, but what do you do? You do it in the name of the Lord. What does that mean? It means we're not telling God how to heal. We're not. We're not telling God how to heal. We're trying to pray a prayer like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego did. If you go back to like Daniel chapter three, if you remember that deal where Nebuchadnezzar is gonna put them in the fire, puts them in the fire, and what do they pray? Like, God, we believe that you are going to save us out of this fire. We believe you're gonna do that. We do believe you can do it, and we believe you will do it. But then the next sentence is, but even if you don't, even if you don't do it, we're not gonna bow to an idol. And that's, what you, that's a prayer of submission. That's called the lordship of Christ. It's like, you know what, you're a sovereign God. Maybe it's gonna be like the apostle Paul when he prayed three times for that thing to be taken out, and it wasn't taken out. And he's like, that's God's answer. But we're gonna pray. The Bible says, ask and it'll be given to you. Knock and the door will be open. Seek and you will find. Those are all like, do it over and over and over and over again. 
And then lastly, just pray. Maybe it's not even you. Maybe you need to pray and get prayed for by somebody that you love. Story right before this. Jesus prays for this guy's son. He prays for the guy's son. You read it, read it later on. Prays for the guy's son. The guy by faith goes back. The son's not even with him. The son's not even with him. The son's miles away, which reminds us geography means nothing to Jesus, right? Nothing. So what does he do? He just prays and the Bible says he's on his way home. The guys come and meet him. He's like, your son's well. When did it happen? Tells him the time and it's like the, it's like the immediate time that Jesus prayed. So maybe it's somebody else. Maybe it's a son. Maybe it's a daughter. Maybe it's somebody you love and they got a terrible report this week from the doctor. The oil is this oil right here. It's not magic, all right? But this isn't even from the Holy Land, all right? That's not, the, that's not what matters. There's a bunch of different commentaries on this means this and this means that. All we know is the Bible says to do it, right? The Bible says to do it. And so what we're gonna do, I, I, I will say this. I think what it means is you look in the Old Testament, it's a, it's a symbol of God's grace. When the priests would get ordained, they anoint him with oil. When the kings would get set apart to lead the nation, they would anoint him with oil. So whatever this is, here's what, uh, here's what we're gonna do. Um, in about 10 seconds, I'm gonna pray. As a matter of fact, wherever you are, if you're at Hendersonville or if you're at Brevard or whatever campus you're on, if you're a prayer encourager slash anointer, if you go ahead and... Uh, Go ahead and get up and kind of go into your positions, if you will. Go ahead and you don't have to wait for me. Just go ahead and do that if you would. If uh, here in a second you're going to stand. And I will say this. The next verse simply says, the, a couple verses down, it says, The prayer of a righteous person, the fervent prayer of a righteous person availeth much. The people going to the walls or the front or whatever, they're not perfect people. Their righteousness is found in what Jesus has done for them. Now they're prayed up. They were praying this morning for this moment, for you. And so what I'm gonna do is uh, I'm gonna pray and then we're gonna do one of two things. You're gonna come to one of these people and just say, all you do is say, would you pray for our marriage? Would you pray for my prodigal? He's gonna put a little oil right here on your forehead and then pray for you. If you want to pray by yourself, there's some room at the platforms. You can do that. But man, there's nothing like somebody just calling out to God on your behalf. So um, all over our campuses, if you would, just go ahead and stand to your feet. Because when we sing, you're going to be standing. And when you come, it makes it easier for you to come on. So you don't even have to wait for me, but I am going to pray now. And you come up and just tell them what it is. You don't have to be just, if you don't have all you, all you've got is tears. Just pray. My spouse isn't here with me. Would you pray for him? That's all you got. Just let him pray. So Father, that's what our prayer is. Our prayer is the next five or six minutes that you'd be exalted. Say we have not because we ask not. When we do ask, we ask with the wrong motives. And so as best we know, as you search our hearts, the best thing we know is that what this is about, it's about the glory of God. It's about us walking in faith saying, God, we pray that you would do. We pray that you would heal. You are a healer. And whether you do it now or whether you wait until eternity to heal us, we pray that for the glory of God, you would heal, that you would do that. God, help us to walk in faith, 
Help us to walk like those three guys thousands of years ago. God, we know you can. We believe you will. And even if you don't, we're not going to bow the idol. We're going to believe you. We're going to sing praises to you. And we're going to exalt you. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.